Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, we thank you so much, Lord. We come yes, before you. Lord, asking for forgiveness first. Of course, we're all born sinners, Lord, and we're not exempt from temptation. Lord, would you just forgive us, whatever it is that is that we've done, Lord, where we have wronged you. Lord, we ask for forgiveness, Lord. And Holy Spirit, would you give us a focus this morning that we would hear, that we would see you, Lord, through your word. We thank you for this time that we can gather together in this beautiful place that you have provided for us, Lord. Would you bless this time in your word? We pray in Jesus' name. This name. Amen. Amen and amen. Good morning and welcome. Glad you're here. You can be seated. I want to welcome those of you that are joining us online as well. We're so glad that you are. A couple things, though, before we get started. The first of which is that I want to thank all of you who served so faithfully and so tirelessly at Teresa's Celebration of Life yesterday. The love and hospitality that you showed to the hundreds of people that attended uh, honored her life, and more importantly, it glorified the Lord. And I hope you all know that you played a big part in getting Jesus to these precious but hurting people, not to mention the witness that this was to the community and really the islands. The comments keep pouring in on social media to this end, and the video of her service just on our YouTube channel was already at 19,000 views early this morning. I don't usually check, but I just wanted to see. And uh, that's the Lord, and praise the Lord, right? Yeah. So please continue to pray that out of this unthinkable tragedy, God, as only He can, will bring the salvation of many in the days ahead, as it seems He is even now doing. So please continue to pray. And speaking of prayer, we're going to have our prayer meeting this Tuesday, uh, 7 p.m. here in the sanctuary. You might want to mark your calendars. That's February 6th coming up. Uh, I'm going to start with a brief message, brief, <laughs> about how God not only answers short three-word prayers during those trials in our life, but how God may also deem it necessary to allow those very trials to protect us from the much greater trial. So that'll be Tuesday night. And then after, I'll share just a brief, again, brief, famous last words, uh, just a brief prayer update concerning my wife. Many of you have been asking. And by the way, thank you all for praying. That means so much to us. Uh, then after that, we're going to have our pastors come up and staff to lead us in prayer for specific needs, and then time permitting, We'll open it up to all church intercessory prayer for the many who have asked us to pray, send in their prayer requests, of which there are many. 
and many of which are very heartbreaking. Some of the things that people are going through are just unimaginable. So it's such a privilege, of course, to pray. And so we would certainly encourage you to join with us Tuesday night. Let's get started. This is our Prophecy Update first service. We've been doing these weekly for many, many years. And then now second service is actually the sermon, which is a verse-by-verse study through the Word of God. We're currently in the book of Jude, a very uh, short book, short in length, but certainly not strength. And as you are probably aware, we're making progress. So the first week we started in verse 1 and made it through, well, verse 1. And then the second week we picked it up in verse 2 and made it through, well, verse 2. Well, last week we decided to really live on the edge. So we started in verse 3 and made it through verse 4, two verses. So now get this, today we're going to do three verses, verses 5 through 7. We're doing this. It'll be live. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Yeah. It doesn't take much for us, does it, to... uh, That'll be live streamed at 11.15 a.m. Hawaii time for those of you that are online. And what we're going to do is look at three specific threats and the ensuing consequences that can be averted and avoided if we would but heed God's word and God's warning. So we're going to do that 11.15 a.m. And also for those of you that are watching by way of either YouTube or Facebook, we'd really encourage you to go directly to the website at jdfrog.org, because there you will find the uncensored and uninterrupted entirety of today's update, as only the first part is streamed on those platforms for those reasons. So with that, let's get started. I'm keenly aware that choosing to title today's update, Why Judgment Day is Coming, might kind of come off as being sensational. But I can assure you that it is not. And the reason for choosing and using the title of Why Judgment Day is Coming is because Judgment Day is coming. And not only is Judgment Day coming, it's coming sooner than anyone can even begin to imagine. And we would all do well to know why. Why do we need to know why? Because though there's little, if any time left, there's still hope left before that day to not be left on that day. Because that day will come. And it will come soon and very soon, so soon that it's going to be sooner than any could ever imagine. Jesus Himself said, I come in an hour you expect not. This is probably as good of a time as any to mention that, like with last week's update, our study through Jude is the impetus for this week's update. 
And this because virtually everything Jude writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is profoundly prophetic in its application in these last days, nay, this last hour. You know, I, when we begin a new book to go verse by verse through, I'm, I'm always excited about the book that we're about to start. And such was the case with Jude, in, in a way more so than most. Because I know what Jude is about. But what I didn't know once we got into it is how timely this letter is for us today. I, this is interesting. I, I was thinking about this, praying about this, and kind of getting a little excited about this. Do you realize that we're kind of getting towards the end of the book of Ezekiel on Thursday nights. And so too, now listen, please, I'm not that clever to time it to where we can finish Jude at the same time we finish Ezekiel, but God is. <laughs> and it would just be like God to do that, right? But you know why that's exciting? Because What's the book that comes after Ezekiel? I'll give you the answer, don't worry. Daniel. Now let's fast forward to the New Testament. What's the book that comes after Jude? Revelation. I mean, wouldn't it just be like God to time it to where we're going to be in Daniel at the same time we're in Revelation? You know what I'm thinking? Because this is how I think pray for me. We're going to get right there, and then the rapture is going to happen. I mean, we'll take it, right? Okay, anyway, back to the prophecy update already in progress. This book of Jude is wow. I mean, it, it is so alive because the Word of God is alive and active sharper than any two-edged sword, able to cut surgically precision between soul and spirit, bone and marrow. And for such a time as this, we are in this book, and it could have been written this year. It's February already, so I should have probably said January 1st. That's how applicable it is to us today. You know what I'm doing right now? I'm building my case and arguing my case for borrowing more verses from Jude for the prophecy update. How am I doing? Well, I am going to borrow two more verses from today's text in our second service, verse by verse study through the book of Jude. And I think you'll see why here in a moment. Those two verses are verses 6 and 7. Listen to what Jude writes. Verse 6, and the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, some of your translations render it first estate, but abandoned their own home or inhabitation or proper domain, 
These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, verse 7, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example slash warning of those who suffer the punishment of eternal life. Judgment, judgment day, punishment, eternal punishment. Two examples. We're actually going to see three second service, but I'm just going to extract these two for purpose of our prophecy update today. And here's why. These two verses have packed prophetic implications, and this for a number of reasons, chief of which is that they speak to the days of Noah and the days of Lot. In the days of Noah, it was these fallen angels who in their unspeakable evil rebelled against God, abandoning the very presence of God. So evil were these particular fallen angels that unlike the others, they had to be bound supernaturally with everlasting chains and reserved. Reserved for what? Reserved for the coming day of judgment. When's that? In the seven year tribulation. How do you know? The book of Revelation. When they are unchained. And whew, you don't want to be here for that. And if you're born again of the Spirit of God, you won't be here for that. And praise the Lord for that. Well, fast forward from the days of Noah to the days of Lot. And the common denominator of why God's day of judgment had to come. This is the textbook case of the why behind the what. We know the what, but it's important to know the why. Because when you know why, the what is the, that's totally coming out wrong, long weekend. Let me try that again. Appreciate your patience. When you know why, then all of a sudden it fills in the blanks and it connects the dots and it opens up the eyes of your understanding. Okay, we know what is coming, God's judgment. Do we know why? Do we know why? Why it's coming? We know that it's coming. We need to know why it's coming. And thank you, God, for inspiring Jude to pen this short letter, because within it we have the answer to the why. As Jude notes, there were similarities between the days of Noah and Lot, but there were other factors in why God had to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. Key word, had to. We know from Scripture that God takes no delight in the punishment or the judgment of the wicked. It's not that He wants to. He can't wait to. No. 
He's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He gave the Amorites 400 years to repent. That's long-suffering. That's grace. That's patience. Why? Here's the why. Because he doesn't take delight in punishing or judging the wicked. You think God enjoys pouring down fire and brimstone upon a people? No. But he has to. Why? Because he's a just God. And I know this might be difficult to wrap your mind around, but if you really think about it, it's the grace of God too. And here's how I get there. When He brings judgment upon a people, He's putting them out of their misery. And in His grace and compassion, He's lessening their eternal torment and punishment. He's also protecting His people because of the threat that they pose. We're going to see that in a moment. So it's really got, it, here's a, a poor illustration, as are all of my illustrations poor, <laughs> but it's the best I got. And if you got another one, let me know, please. You know, if you've got a dog whose fate is already sealed, that's already going to die, it has, I guess, rabies or whatever, and it's just a matter of time. You, you've got to take that dog out. You've got to kill that dog. First of all, you're putting that dog out of its misery because its fate is already sealed. But you're also protecting your, your children. And God is protecting His children from this unspeakable evil and wickedness. Certainly when it comes to Lot, again, as we'll see in a moment. But there's similarities, as Jude notes. However, there's also some different factors as to the why behind God bringing judgment. And I have to confess that the factors leading up to judgment day for Sodom and Gomorrah are as chilling as they are frightening when you consider the account in the book of Ezekiel, which again explains the why behind the what of God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. I'll begin reading in verse 48 of Ezekiel 16. God is going to declare through the prophet Ezekiel, as I live, says the Lord God. Now, this is to Judah, to his people who were committing abominations in the sight of the Lord, evil and wickedness. So wicked was their evil and abomination before the Lord as God's people, that God through the prophet Ezekiel likens them to Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, he even takes it further and says, you're even worse than your sister Sodom. He says, neither your sister Sodom nor her daughters have done as you and your daughters have done. Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had, listen, pride, fullness of food, 
an abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. Now, if you're anything like me, and I suspect that you are, you're just as prone as I am to close the file on this under, well, that was them then, this is us now. And to do so is to err greatly because it's both them then and even more so us now. How? By virtue of the prophetic parallels to our day. Are you with me? One need look no further than to Bible prophecy spoken by the Savior Himself, comparing these, the very last days, to both Noah's days and Lot's days. Luke's Gospel, chapter 17, beginning in verse 26, the Savior is speaking. And He says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. Take note. What was it like in the days of Noah? Oh, verse 27, they ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, verse 28, as it was also in the days of Lot, what was it like in the days of Lot? Well, they too ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, more like he was yanked out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Real quick, parenthetically, let me say, this is a pre-tribulation rapture scripture picture. Because according to the detailed account of Lot, reluctant, hesitating, the angels of the Lord by force grabbed his hand. We have to go now. Because until you're taken out, no fire and brimstone can come down. Because God is not going to judge the righteous with the wicked. Ask Abraham about that. Oh, by the way, Lot, Abraham is pleading his case for Lot. You're not going to destroy, like if you find 50 righteous, will you destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? No. If there's 50, I won't. But there's not 50, so I will. And so he keeps, you know, negotiating down. And he gets down to a number, and there's not even that number that are righteous that would stay the hand of God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. So instead, God said, get them out, and then when they're out, judgment will come down. No fire, no brimstone, no judgment could come down until they were taken out, and so too with us. No judgment, the wrath of God, 
the tribulation coming upon the whole earth, the seven year tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, that 70th week, it can't begin until we're taken out. Chicken skin. <laughs> okay, so now we've got this comparison to the days of Noah, and we're connecting it now to the days of Lot. And then Jesus says this, even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. It's going to be just like that. I better quit while I'm ahead. That was pretty good. Now, <laughs> let's add to this the Apostle Peter, who echoes the words of the Savior, and with him the biological half-brother of the Savior, remember? Jude, born to Joseph and Mary. So here's Peter, 2 Peter, chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. I mean, it's, it's a parallel passage in a way. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. By the way, I'll try to catch my breath. This is all one sentence. So if I start hyperventilating, you'll know why. And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Wow. I, I, I can relate. So can you. It is getting so bad. Day, every day, all day, day in, day out, Lot was tormented by the wickedness, the lawlessness, the abominations committed there in Sodom and Gomorrah. Then, verse 9, all of that, if the Lord knows how to do all of that, don't make me go back and read it again. Sorry I interrupted it. But if, if God can do all of that and did, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations, trials, and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, judgment day. And it's not a movie with Bruce Willis in it. Well, that was a different one. I'm sorry. Here's where I'm going with this. Both of these prophecies concerning Noah and Lot serve as an example at best and a warning at worst of God's coming judgment soon. 
coming soon. Actually, these warnings come vis-a-vis the question of why God's day of judgment is coming. And if you'll allow me to, I want to begin with the days of Lot. And the reason being is that the sexual perversion of Sodom and Gomorrah ensued from the very things that mark the world today, as Jesus said it was. As it was in Lot's day, it's going to be exactly like that in the last days. Well, what was it like in Lot's day? Well, they, they were certainly sexually immoral and the perversion abounded. But that was not necessarily the only thing. In fact, it actually was the result of their pride, their prosperity, and probably one of the most chilling is their abundance of idleness, just to mention a few. Doubtless you've heard the saying, idle hands are the devil's workshop. Remember when your parents would say that to you? You young people have no clue because that was so long ago. Now you have devices, so you're not idle. Well, it's not only true, it's also why oftentimes being so prosperous can also be so dangerous. Stay with me. There's nothing wrong with us having prosperity. However, things can go very wrong when the prosperity has us. Listen to Ecclesiastes 7.14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful, but in the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other. Why? So that man can find out nothing that will come after him. As some of your translations render it, man can discover nothing about his future. This verse hits the proverbial and might I add prophetic nail on the head, specific to the effect that prosperity and adversity can have on a person's life and lifestyle. In other words, prosperity has the propensity to lead to sinful indulgences taking us away from God whereas adversity leads us to humility, turning us back to God. And herein lies the why. As to God allowing and bringing the adversity alongside the prosperity, such that when we don't know what the future holds, we're propelled to rely upon God who holds the future. So you're, you're enjoying a time of prosperity. Fine. Don't feel guilty about it. Don't tell us about it because we're suffering adversity. We don't really want to hear because that's nice for you. Because um, we're going through the trial of our life and you're having the time of your life and you need, you need to be sensitive. You know, we're so insensitive to our brothers and sisters in Christ who are really struggling. 
And we're just so crass and cliche in our quoting of scriptures. You know, well, hey, trust the Lord. Okay, I will. Thank you. Bye. Bye. I mean, well, let's wait till the tables are. I had no intention of going there, but I'm going there. This is maybe for someone. I won't look at you. You know who you are. But let's wait for the tables to be turned. And now adversity has struck you. Don't relish in it. Kind of like, cool. It's about time. Because, you know, we got it backwards, right? We rejoice when those mourn and mourn when those rejoice. Never mind on, just, yeah, never mind. Let me see if I can bring this back and actually redeem it. Um, when you're going through a very difficult time and adversity strikes, does it not bring you to the place where, and here you just had a time of prosperity, and God has deemed it fit to bring alongside the prosperity adversity, because He knows that if He left us in that season of prosperity, what's going to ensue is an abundance of idleness, and then we're in big trouble. And God is not going to be party to our disobedience. He can't do that. He's always going to create an environment in our lives that is conducive to our obedience, not disobedience. He's always going to create and orchestrate the circumstances to lend itself to our obedience. He's going to choreograph the steps of our life. And if it requires that adversity strike in order to do that, well then guess what? Adversity is going to strike. Because now, all of a sudden, God's got my attention, right? And it shows up in our prayer life, right? During times of prosperity, what's your prayer life like? I'll just speak for myself, take one for the team, being the godly, humble pastor that I am. But my prayer life is basically, bless you, God, bless this, bless them, bless that. And then in Jesus' name, amen, off I go. Okay, <laughs> let's be honest. Now, adversity strikes, oh God, oh now. Now we can talk. Now you're looking to me. Yeah, because I don't know what the future holds. Well, I hold the future. Well, now things are a little bit uncertain now, because everything was going along just fine until adversity struck. And I was kind of getting soft, getting comfortable, and starting to expect it, like, hey, it's just going to be like this all the time. Do you know what sunny days with no rain, not even a cloud, is. It's called the desert. Right? Barren, nothing grows. Is that, is that what? Yeah. I, I, lo I love the sun. You, what, this last week, what was up with this last week? Don't get me started on that. That's another prophecy update for another time concerning weather. I mean, I'm looking at you, I'm going to tell you, and here we are, we're in Hawaii, we're, we're, again, I'll just speak for myself, we're starting, starting, first of all, it's really cold. And all it takes is for God to just have somebody from our online church come and visit from Minnesota or Alaska 
say, you know, and he's going, and they say things like this, and it's, it's funny. It's funny. They say, we're just wondering why you guys are wearing coats here. <laughs> well, because we're freezing. No, this is not freezing. This is beautiful, warm temperatures. But it starts to rain and we complain, oh, where's the sun already? I need to get back to the prophecy update somehow, but just bear with me. I'll figure out some way. But isn't it true that that's when it takes place? It requires adversity to strike. Now God's got our attention. <laughs> this is textbook. When it comes to the days of Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah, and the reasons as to why the judgment of God had to come and did in fact come, here's the truth. The very reasons judgment came are the very same reasons that judgment is coming. Our day is like Lot's day. It starts with prosperity, then leads to an abundance of idols, because now, hey, I got all this money, I got all this time, I just hire people, they do all the work, and I can just sit back. And, and then this abundance of idleness leads to disregarding the poor and the needy. No regard for the poor, who you will always have among you, Jesus said. And then this disregarding the needy is due to being haughty, haughty. Then haughtiness leads to the committing of abominations in the sight of the Lord, which is what leads to the ultimate destruction in judgment from the Lord. Dare I say, that what I just explained is precisely what's happening today, and as such explains why God's judgment is coming very soon. Now, before we go any further, I think I'd be grossly remiss were I not to address a misnomer as it relates to the Proverbs we're all familiar with about pride coming before the fall. What if I told you it's not pride that comes before the fall? What if I told you it was pride that goes before destruction, Proverbs 16, 18, and a haughty spirit before a fall? Let me read that again, Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 18.12, before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty, and before honor is humility. And Proverbs 21.4 opens it up. A haughty look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked are sin. See? It's the haughty look. Notice the delineation between being full of pride in one's heart and having a haughty spirit, which is synonymous with a haughty look. See, haughtiness looks down on others 
as being inferior to the one who has a haughty spirit. And they look upon those, look down on them with disdain. And it's evidenced by what their heart is full of, which is pride. So much so that before the destruction you will always find someone who is haughty and thus full of pride leading to the destruction. Now why do I go into all of this? Because it's going to be germane to our understanding of the prophecy of God's judgment in Lot's day, Noah's day, and by extension our day. I'm hoping you're able to make this connection because it is a powerfully prophetic connection. First we need to understand why Jude, inspired by the Holy Spirit, would provide, of all of the examples in God's Word about God's judgment, these particular examples. In particular, these fallen angels in Noah's day. The specificity of the text seems to indicate that these were no ordinary fallen angels. Rather, they were so uniquely evil and wicked that they had to be supernaturally chained and reserved for the day of judgment. These angels must be really bad. The belief is that these are none other than the Nephilim found in Genesis 6, who perverted and corrupted mankind's gene pool. Everybody gets a little bit dodgy whenever you bring up the Nephilim. What are the Nephilim? Well, in the original language of the Hebrew Old Testament, Genesis 6 refers to and translates them as giants. And for those of you that have the Bible software, you can go into the original language, you click on giants, and it's the Hebrew word Nephilim. Who were the Nephilim? These were these fallen angels who had unnatural sexual union with women, producing an unnatural offspring who were no longer fully human. You probably already know where I'm going, and I will get there. But this is why God had to judge the entire world by way of the flood. Save Noah and his family, who were still intact in their genetics. Genesis 6-9. Please don't let the enemy, this is the last thing the enemy wants you to understand and hear today. So this is where he comes in and gets your mind to wander and distracts you to think about what you're going to eat when you're finally out of here. <laughs> don't let him do that. Well, thanks a lot, Pastor. You just put that in my mind. Now I'm thinking about it. Well, stop. Genesis 6, and I'm going to read it. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. I'm sorry to say 
that comes nowhere near the original language's interpretation of what made Noah unique to be saved. Yes, he was a righteous, godly man, upright in all of his ways. But when you read the word perfect, let's start with that. It's the Hebrew word tamim. It's the same word in my native tongue of Arabic pronounced tamam. So if you were to come up to me in Arabic and ask me, how am I doing? I would respond in Arabic this way. Kul ishima'ai tamam. What did I just say? It wasn't bad, by the way. I said, everything with me is intact, perfectly intact. Now hang on to that. Because this word tamam, it's so much more than even that. It's like, I guess you could say akin to the Greek language, which is so much more vast than the English language as evidenced by our one word for love, whereas in Greek you have four words for love. So we say, I love my wife, I love my children, I love God, I love French vanilla ice cream, not vanilla, French vanilla. Don't bring me French vanilla ice cream. It'll melt by the time I get it anyway. Well, it's the same word love, but come on, these are very different things. Well, if you're Greek, you don't say it like that. You say, that was another good one. I think I'll leave it at that. You say it like this. Um, I love God, but God agapes me. That unconditional love. I eros my wife. It's erotic. That's where we get our word erotic. It's a sensual, physical, even sexual love. By the way, uh, side note, God invented sex. Satan perverted sex. Is that okay? Well, I just said it, so it has to be okay. Um, but philia, where we get Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That's the love that we have for one another. And storge is a parental love, a familial love, the love that a parent has for a child and vice versa. Natural affection, it's translated storge love. So I, I love my children. Uh, I, God agapes me. I philia you and I eros. <laughs> anyway, this, you, get, you get that picture. You got four words. Well, so too with the Hebrew. You've got one word and it's translated as such, but it means the following. Perfect, complete, unscathed, intact, undefiled, and without blemish, uncorrupted. That's kind of a lot. There's actually even more, but I'll spare you. Now, Let's tackle the word generations. So now we've got Noah perfect tamam intact in his generations. What is generations? Well, generations is actually not just genealogy, it's also genome, genetics. So Genesis 6, 9 could literally be read as follows. Noah was perfectly intact in his genetic profile 
meaning his human DNA had not been corrupted by non-human DNA as it had in the human gene pool at the time. Did you get that? So just rewind real quick. When Jesus says that as it was in the days of Noah, so too will it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. I'm getting ahead of myself. Could he be speaking about the very same thing? Yes. Satan has been trying to pervert and pollute, corrupt and contaminate the human DNA. Why? So as to thwart the first prophecy found in the Bible in Genesis 3.15, known as the Proto-Evangelicum, which is just a word that makes it sound like I went to Bible college or seminary. I mean seminary. I didn't. And neither do you. What's the Proto-Evangelicum? It's the gospel wrapped up in the first Bible prophecy about the coming Savior of the world, virgin born, fully God, fully man, brought forth by the seed of the woman. No, women don't have seed, they have ache. No, this is the virgin birth. And it's going to come from the woman. Who's the woman? Israel. So Satan has been trying. See, he can't exterminate them. He tried that starting with Cain murdering Abel, with Pharaoh trying to get all of the Hebrew boys thrown into the Nile to their certain death. All throughout the Old Testament, Haman in the book of Esther, getting the king to agree to issue an edict to eliminate all of the Hebrews in Persia at the time. Thwarted, thwarted. Why is he trying to thwart? Why is he trying to get rid of the, the Jews? Because it's from them that the Savior of the world would be born. So he's trying to stop that from happening. Never going to happen. So he failed. Get in the New Testament. Herod. Butchers, literally, it's, it's unimaginable. Butchers every Jewish boy under the age of two, hoping to kill the Savior who unto us was born. That didn't work. All throughout history, you can go to the last century with Hitler, tries to exterminate and eliminate all of the Jews. Why? Because he's trying to thwart. He failed the first coming of Christ. Now he's trying to thwart the rapture and the second coming. Really, actually, the second coming, technically, because at the end of the seven year tribulation, Israel has to call upon the one whom they pierced, and he will come. See, Satan knows the Bible way, way better than we do. So if there's no Israel, they can't call upon the one whom they pierced. So he knows that. So he's failed at that. But he's got a plan B working parallel alongside in the background. What is it? Well, he knows that if he can corrupt the human DNA, then man is no longer man, and as such, redeemable. Because Jesus came as a man to redeem man. And Satan knows that if he can, which he succeeded in large measure in the days of Noah, by getting these angels that are chained and reserved for their judgment, 
And they polluted and corrupted the human DNA, the gene pool of mankind, which again is the why. This is why God had to destroy the world with a flood, because they were unredeemable. Their fate was already sealed. He took no delight in it. Their fate was already sealed. They were no longer redeemable. This is why it is, fast forward, and we'll talk about this in a moment. Those who take the mark of the beast are doomed and damned for all eternity. Why? Because I'm God, and I said, don't take that thing. That's why. No. It's because at some point, it will alter the human DNA, making you not human, rather transhuman. And now you're no longer redeemable. And that's why you will be doomed and damned for all eternity. I know this is strong, but it needs to be, it needs to be. Now, Genesis 3.15 is what ensued from Genesis 3, 4, and 5. What's Genesis 3, 4, and 5? Well, it's where we're told that the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, you lies, you lie. That's not in the original, I just, effects added. Your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, God doesn't want you to be like Him. So he's holding out on you, because he doesn't want you to be a God. He alone wants to be God over you. He's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to know what he knows. You need to be God to know what God knows. The, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge, gnosis of good and evil. Okay. Last Saturday, we received a most interesting email from an online member, though he did not ask me to keep his name anonymous. I made the decision to do so. And as I read this, I think you'll understand why. Here's what he writes. Hi, JD. I've been with you for several years now. Back in 1980, I met my wife and three days later we were married. Six months later, we became Christians. At that time, we were living in Chicago, working in publishing. My wife worked for the Watergate crew, as in Nixon. For some reason, they took a shining to me. They invited us to all of their parties and began to mentor me. At one of the parties, I noticed that there were just as many Democrats as Republicans. Hmm. I asked, you seem very friendly towards each other. Aren't you enemies? I was told, no, we're both globalists. We just disagree on how to get there. They explained how they get things done. So now I can't not see it. They asked my wife and me to oversee President Reagan's inauguration. I said, I had no clue how to do that. They explained, I didn't need to. It was just a way to make you rich. Thankfully, I turned it down because I had just given myself to Jesus and come to understand that the world was filled with evil. 
the parties continued, and being aware of this evil, I noticed they all had Mason's rings, and all worshipped Norman Vincent Peale. Remember him? He was a minister who didn't sound like one. Being freshly acquainted with Jesus, it didn't take long to understand their New Age religion. So the reason why I'm writing you, JD, is that I know that to certain members of their club, it's not about world peace. It's about becoming gods. What? Satan needs to get new material. Because, I mean, that's kind of outdated, isn't it? Now you use that, what, how many thousands of years ago in the garden? Can't you come up with something new? This brings me full circle to the reason as to why Judgment Day is coming in our day, just as Judgment Day came in Noah's day. But we're going to have to end the live stream at this time. Bye. <laughs> Sorry. Told you so. Kindly allow me to preface this by stating that the why behind the what has to do with the how Satan has repackaged the old lie with new wrapping paper. This new wrapping paper on the old lie is how Satan is now about to do the same thing he did in the days of Noah. However, instead of using the Nephilim to pervert and corrupt the human DNA, which he can't because they're already chained. <laughs> you can't use them. They're unavailable. So instead of using them, to corrupt the human DNA. Now he's going to use a yet future vaccine, so-called. Now don't roll your eyes yet. Man, J.D., can't you just move on? No. I mean, isn't this, talk about old news, can't you get some new material? No. We've been we, I've been talking about this for the last well nigh four years. In prior updates, we've done many deep dives. And because of that, I will be, and with that, in the interest of time, I'll try to be as brief as I possibly can. Those familiar with the Great Reset have connected the dots with the Great Deception of 2 Thessalonians 2, which will be realized in the Great Tribulation. How? Via a biodigital ID and the merging of artificial intelligence, which is really satanic intelligence, ultimately leading to transhumanism. There are many parallels between Noah's day and our day, but I believe none are as prophetically significant as the corruption and contamination of man's DNA in our day. Now let me hasten to say that the so-called vaccine in its current form does not alter human DNA yet. It does damage human DNA which is why so many people are dying suddenly. 
I've shared about my daughter, Noelle. She had a third copy of the 18 chromosome. It was just an anomaly. And she had full what they call trisomy 18. Try three, the chromosome, somy the 18. The medical community called her incompatible with life. Oh, yesterday I, I shared, uh, have you guys heard this term? Because I've been asking people and I'm, I'm kind of surprised because I've been hearing it lately. Here's the word. Uh, they were unalived. That's what I thought. You didn't hear about that either. Unalived? <laughs> I'm telling you, man, Jesus is coming. The rapture's like right now. Unalived. No, I did a celebration of life. She's alive in the presence of the Lord, absent from her body. Unalived? That's so weird. I'm sorry. I just needed to get that off my chest. So she was incompatible with life. She was going to die. It wasn't a matter of if, it was when and how soon. Why? Because her DNA was so damaged. By the way, trisomy 21 is Down syndrome. That is compatible with life. And by the way, aren't the Down syndrome children the most innocent and precious children you've ever met? They're just so innocent. They have a third copy of the 21 chromosome. If you get 18 or 13, I was talking to my son about this the other day, about his uh, sister, Noel, my oldest son. And he said, why is it just 18, 13, and 21? What about the other ones? Well, the, uh, I don't want to get into the complicated nature of it and explain it, but simply put, these particular chromosomes are key chromosomes. See, we get 23 from our mother and 23 from our father. So 46 make up the human genome. So if you get, eight, so you got two copies of 18. If you get a third copy of the 18, you will not survive it. So that's what's happening right now. My daughter was still human, but her DNA was so damaged she could not live. She would not survive, and that's why she died. And that's why people are dying right now. So here's why. If the world today is like Noah's day, and it most certainly is, then wouldn't it stand to reason that Satan would need to have his DNA corrupting seed at the ready to hit the ground running? Answer, he most certainly does. How? By way of the aforementioned DNA corrupting seed in a yet future so-called vaccine. Now, I say yet future because the current vaccine cannot yet be the mark of the beast that's foretold of in the book of Revelation. But please, 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 that's not to say that yet future is distant future. It's not even not so distant future. It's not even near future. It's actually, again, much sooner than any could possibly imagine. And here's why. Here's another why. Got a lot of whys today. It's already in place. What do you mean? Oh, they're just waiting for the green light. Uh, how do you know this? 
couple weeks ago, I referenced an interview with the Florida State Surgeon General, who was surprisingly, and might I add, daringly proving that the COVID-19 so-called vaccines have, quote, DNA integration, which, quote, poses, listen, a unique and elevated risk to human health and to the integrity of the human genome the integrity of keeping the human DNA intact, tamim, tamam, including the risk that DNA integrated into sperm or egg gametes could be passed on to offspring of mRNA COVID-19 vaccine recipients. Still quoting. If the risks of DNA integration have not been assessed for mRNA COVID-19 vaccines, these vaccines are not appropriate for use in human beings. That's the point. We want them to be for use in human beings because we don't want the human beings to be human beings anymore. Are we okay? This is the truth. And by the way, never take my word for it. You be a Berean. You search the scriptures for yourself. You connect the prophetic dots between Genesis 6, the days of Noah, the days of Lot, and our day in these last days. You do the work. <laughs> Sorry, that was mean. We have, as we always do, provided the link to the original documents, which in this case is a downloadable PDF file that's pictured here. If the guys want to just put it back up on the screen. It's only two pages, this one. I actually downloaded a, what was a 498 page PDF file on the patent that was granted for this technology. And I started to read through it, and my hair really hurt, which I don't have any hair to hurt, but what hair I had really hurt. It was so technical, but I caught a couple things, and I'm still working on it. Maybe I will share it. I also am working on something, Lord willing, and if we're still here for next week, that I hope will tie all of this together, and how it's going to kind of go down during the seven-year tribulation how all of this is going to happen, this integration, this transhumanism, this merging of man with machine. Um, I would really encourage you to take some time to research some of the evidence that's linked in this document for yourself. And again, be a Berean, as it were. One such document, which is pictured here, seems to single-handedly verify the seriousness with which the human DNA in these so-called vaccines has the potential for DNA corruption, or to use their word highlighted here, and I quote, DNA contamination? That means it's not pure anymore, it's been contaminated. <laughs> it doesn't sound like it's very tamam anymore. Here's the conclusion of the matter, and it comports with the 
Bible prophecies concerning why God's judgment day is coming and how soon it's coming in our day today. Why? Answer, because our day today in these last days is exactly what it was like in Noah's days and Lot's days. And Jesus warned that the last days before His coming would be exactly like it was in the days of Noah and the days of Lot. And today it is exactly like it was in the days of Noah and the days of Lot. And it means only one thing, Jesus is coming. That trumpet's going to sound. I want to leave you with a question. Are you ready? Are you ready? You'll forgive me for saying it this way, but you remember that, that saying, ready or not, here I come. I hope it's okay, but I just kind of, in a sanctified way, of course, can almost hear Jesus saying, ready or not, here I come. I'm coming. And I'm going to bring just judgment on a Christ-rejecting world. Please don't reject Christ. Accept Christ and His gift of eternal life. This is why we always end with the gospel, the good news of salvation. Please don't tune me out. This is not rote. Please don't let it be. By the way, yesterday we had, I don't know how many hundreds of people, standing room only, people that have probably never stepped foot in a church in many years, if at all, and doubtless many who had never heard the gospel presented clearly and simply. And they heard the gospel yesterday clearly and simply. And I went through the ABCs of salvation. And what we're hearing now is that many have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ because of that. So here goes. Just give me a couple minutes here, okay? The gospel's the good news. That's what the word gospel means. Your debt's been paid. The penalty's been satisfied. You're free to go. And whom the Son is set free is free indeed. The gospel is that Jesus came and He was crucified he was buried and He rose again on the third day, and He's coming back again one day. Good news. And that is good news. Well, what are the ABCs of salvation? Just a childlike, simple explanation of salvation. How to be saved. How to be saved. It's, it's very simple. It's childlike simple. This is not a formula. It's just a simple tool that you can use, should God ever give you the profound privilege of having somebody ask you about the hope that you have, because something's different about you. I mean, they've always known that you look different, but no, there's something really peculiar about you. And it's, it's kind of piqued their curiosity. Why is it that you've always got a smile on your face? I hate it. You, you, you get excited when you hear about what's happening in the world. You're like, yeah, what's up with that? Oh, you don't know? Good news. And you can share the good news, the blessed hope. 
that you have in Jesus Christ. First, there has to be this acknowledging or admitting that you're a sinner, because absent that, why would you want to hear about the Savior? Well, I'm a good person. I've never murdered anybody. Is that not the common response when you're sharing the gospel? Because, see, Satan has succeeded with a smashing success. I haven't used that word for a while. I really like that word. Smashing success in getting people to believe that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. Now think about that. (laughs) Boy, are we in for a surprise. There's going to be a lot of very bad people in heaven. I'll be at the front of that line. And don't look at me like that, because you'll be right behind me. And there's going to be a lot of good people who thought they were good enough in hell, because that's not the litmus test by which we're entering the kingdom of God. Romans 3.10 says, there is no one righteous. No one's good. Not even one, save one, Jesus the Christ, who was perfect perfect in His righteousness. Romans 3.23, this is just all the bad news first, because the badder the bad news is, the gooder the good news will be. Don't email me. I know that's not good proper English. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. More bad news. Well, (laughs) you want the bad news or you want the badder news first? Well, just get it over with. Okay, Romans 6.23. Here's the really bad news. There's a penalty for your sin. And that penalty is the death penalty for the wages of sin is death. Boy, this just keeps getting worse. Well, now I'm ready for the good news. What's the good news? Well, the Holy Spirit is going to come like a schoolmaster, like a tutor, and take you by the hand as you look into the perfect mirror of God's law, the law of God, the Ten Commandments. And you're like, you know, I, I broke a couple, but not all of them. Well, the Bible says if you break one, you've broken the whole thing. And you fall short of God's perfect standard of righteousness. And you were born a sinner. And This is why we have to be born again. So here you are. And the the, the law, what if I told you the Ten Commandments were never meant for us to keep? Is Is that hard to get your mind around? You know what the Ten Commandments are for? The Ten Commandments are to show us the perfection of God's standard of righteousness, to show us us in the mirror of God's law. What what happens when you look in the mirror? (laughs) This is one of the, yeah, (laughs) don't don't take that too far. It's, oh, Jesus, come quickly. But you make corrections because you see the imperfections of which there are many as you get older. So when you're looking in the mirror of God's Word, you see how short you fall, how you've broken the law and transgressed. And so now you're like, I'm in big trouble. Yes, you are. Um, I'm going to be penalized for this. Yes, you are. Am I going to get the death penalty? As a matter of fact, you are. Now here comes the Holy Spirit, a type of the schoolmasters. The Holy Spirit takes you by the hand, says, hey, let me take you to the Savior who fulfilled the law for you instead of you. Really? Let's go. Okay, come on. So he takes you by the hand and he says to you, here's a gift for you, paid for you. 
purchased for you. What's the gift? Oh, it's the gift of God. It's eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's good news. Notice the contrast between wages and gift. Wages are earned, a gift is given and received. If you pay for the gift, it's no longer a gift, it's a purchase. No, He purchased the gift. How much did it cost Him? Everything. He paid it in full. And you are purchased with the price. You are not your own. You belong to Him. And He pays the price, purchases the gift of eternal life. What a gift! And He offers it to you to receive. And all it requires in order to receive is to believe. And that's the B. It's actually even simpler than ABC. It's as simple as B. Believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. Romans 10.9 says, if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. And the C lastly is for call upon the name of the Lord. Or as Romans 10.9 also says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And is it not true that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks? When you believe in your heart, it's going to come forth from your mouth. And you're going to confess. By the way, there's coming a day where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The only problem is, when that happens, it's going to be too late. That will be for damnation. Whereas when we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord now, it's for salvation, not damnation. Lastly, what seals the deal is Romans 10, 13. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's just simple. Believe in your heart. And what comes out of the abundance of the heart will be just this praising Him, calling upon Him, confessing Him, thanking Him. Remember what it was like for those of you that are born again of the Spirit of God when you first got saved? Nobody could be around you. All you could talk about was Jesus. And your theology, very limited. Jesus is real. He's really, really real. Jesus is real. Did I tell you that Jesus is real? I mean, that's, but all you could do was praise Him and thank Him. Oh, that God would restore unto us the joy of our salvation. Today's But God testimony is more of an encouragement to those who are battle-weary, <laughs> longing for the Lord's return in the pre-tribulation rapture. <laughs> comes from Brenda, who actually sent this in, actually several months ago now. But I thought it would be apropos for today. She writes, Hi, Pastor J.D. and family at Calvary Chapel, Kaneohe. I've been watching your Prophecy Update videos since before the lockdowns, and I am so grateful I found you. I listened to your update, and you are 100% right. COVID-19 is the engine for the Great Reset, and I have the World Economic Forum's book to back that up. 
I bought it in 2020 because there was so much confusion going on and pretty much confirmed that nothing about the lockdowns was ever about stopping a virus. Your updates, the exemption letters you gave out, the book and other information I was able to find at the time kept me and my family from getting these shots. I cannot thank you enough. Anyway, I've been working in the grocery store, grocery industry the entire time. And it has left its mark on me. There's no pun intended there. The last three years have been stressful. I remember you expressing empathy for people like me in 2020. I hated the masks and I greatly appreciated it. I remember the fights between anti and pro mask people. The fear-filled crowds pushing in all around me and co-workers saying people like me who didn't get the shots deserve to die. She wrote it just like that. I knew from the moment the lockdown started and I got that book in June of 2020, things were never going back. Since then, I have felt alone and a little bit insane <laughs> as I watched so many seemingly buy the lie that everything is going to be fine as everything radically changed all around us. Now we have, this is interesting because I noticed it, this when I do get out, which is not very often. She says, now we have Pfizer advertisements playing over the PA every few minutes, reminding us that COVID is here to stay. So get your shots like a good little citizen. Today I had just had it. I went home, I hugged my sister, and I just wept. Listening to your update with my sister helped me feel less alone. I can't wait till we go home. Thank you so much, Brenda. If you read this, please use only my first name. She didn't give me her last name, so <laughs> I, okay. Capono, come on up. Why don't you stand up? And I appreciate so much your patience. You're very gracious. I, there's always a fine line between trying to be time sensitive, but yet at the same time not cannibalizing the strength of that which I believe God has put on my heart to share with you in these prophecy updates. I mean, I, I, I've shared this before, I'll share it again, and then we'll close in prayer and component, we'll close in song. But if you only knew how much I leave out, it would just boggle your mind. And I, like I shared last week, I, I, just, I just save it, you know, I archive it. I say, well, maybe I'll use it next week. Well, the problem is, is that it just piles up. So now my archive file is like over a thousand pages. <laughs> no, for real. And I'm thinking, what, Lord, what would you have me to leave in? And what would you have me to take out? You see what I'm doing again? I'm trying to justify the arguing of my case for the length of the prophecy updates. How am I doing? Okay, and let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for Bible prophecy. It's Ah, it's heavy, yes, but so needed. It's 
you telling us what the world's going to look like before you come. And it's exactly like you said it would look like. By comparing it to Noah's day and Lot's day and all of the other characteristics marking the last days. Lord, this is it. And we're so excited, yet it's getting very hard and seemingly harder with each passing day. I know many are hurting and struggling. Lord, would you just bring encouragement and strengthen the hearts of your people? Encourage them, as the Apostle Paul would write, with these words concerning the rapture taking place. Lord, that's what keeps us going, is knowing that very soon, sooner than we believe, that trumpet is going to sound, and the dead in Christ are going to rise first. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up and will meet you in the air, and they'll be there too, and will be with you forever. Lord, we can't wait. Please come quickly, we pray. Maranatha, in Jesus' name, amen.